And I had an idea of how one should sing a black flag song. Like lungs should come out of a mouth, blood should fly out of the mouth, eyeballs should be, you know, ejected from the eye sockets, and an audience should be properly terrified. <laughs> What's up, everybody? This is Sarah, your host of Talk to the Hand Podcast, a podcast about the 90s, everything you love about the 90s, and more. Hey, everyone. How you doing? We have a good week this week. we got two episodes for you. We sat down with the legendary punk icon, Renaissance artist himself, Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins was, is an incredible um, icon in just the alternative art community. He is a prolific artist, spoken word performer. He is a an author who has published many books. He is a regular contributor to publications like LA Weekly and Rolling Stone and The Land. He is an actor. He was in um, Sons of Anarchy. He was in Heat. He was in um, a bunch of really cool movies. And uh, just a really, really freaking cool guy. He, uh, you know, we, we grew up listening to him when he was um, in Black Flag and in the Rollins Band in the 80s and 90s, respectively. And he's always just been a uh, really cool guy, a really big influence in both Eric and my life, um, especially artistically. And we are lucky enough to call him a personal friend. He was a um, he was our best man at our wedding and uh, our ring bearer and just a really, really cool guy. So he was really nice and sat down with us and we ended up talking for two hours, hence why we are breaking this up into two parts because we could just talk to him for hours and we have. Um, but we're breaking this up into two parts. This episode focuses on his time, his childhood, um, because we do talk, you know, a lot of themes about childhood and what, what our lives were like growing up. Um, so we got to hear about his childhood. We talk about, um, in this episode, we talk about his time in Black Flag in the 80s. And we also touch on um, the 90s as well. So uh, we talk about Lollapalooza, which was really honored, like arguably one of the first um modern festivals. The Rollins Band was the opening band at Lollapalooza 1991 for the very first uh, tour. So really cool, really cool primary source, oral histories here. Um, really cool guy. Can't wait for you to hear the interview. Um, so stick around for that. But before we get into the interview and Henry, I just wanted to remind you to please make sure you are following us on social media. You can find us at TTTHpod on Twitter, Talk to the Hand Pod on Instagram. You can Find us online at talktothehandpod.com, or you can email us at talktothehandpod at gmail.com. Um, just a little bit of a, you know, a little content warning. We do talk about substances. Um, you know, it's a rock and roll lifestyle. We do talk about kind of the rock and roll lifestyle, but it's a really um, interesting uh, historical in insight into LA and the music scene in the eighties and nineties. Um, so make sure you stick around for that. Also, please make sure you leave us a five-star review on Apple. Um, it helps us with the algorithm. And in the month of April, you will be uh, entered into our TTTH pod giveaway. If you leave a five-star review with a comment, so we know your um, screen name, so we can call you out at the end of April and you will win a really cool box of TTTH pod swag and merch and 
and all kinds of fun 90s stuff. So make sure you do that. I think that's all I have for you today. Our next episode will drop on Thursday. It's going to be side B with Henry, and he'll tell you even more about his time in the 90s, including when he won a Grammy and if he ever met Kurt Cobain. So stick around for that. And until then, here's our interview with Henry Rollins. First of all, thank you so much, Henry, for joining us today. Um, Henry, our ring bearer, our best man. <laughs> and only man at our wedding. Uh, yeah, that's a, that was a rare moment in history I was able to witness, and I, I'm so glad you all asked me. And yeah. uh, I was so happy to have been a part of that, all five of us in that room. <laughs> exactly. We're, we were honored to have you. Yes. Uh, it was incredible. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about the 90s. We're so excited. Good to have you. No problem at all. Well, so we wanted to, okay, so we told you this is an episode about the 90s, um, but we also talk, oh, we touch on uh, things that shaped us in our childhood. And I know you grew, grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, what were some of the things you liked to do as a kid? Uh, do you remember the first record you bought? And I know you were a big reader and writer. What, what were some of the things you liked to do as a kid? Well, I was born in 1961 in Washington, D.C. And so by the time I was a little kid able to know what a record player was, that would be like first grade grade, second grade, so late 60s, in Washington, D.C., living with a mom to the left of hers, Joan Baez, in a wall, visiting a father on the weekends due to the divorce court agreement. To the right of him is Sean Hannity and the proverbial wall. No music at my dad's house, but you know, racial slurs, alcohol, and fear was the weekend with dad. But um, in my mom's microscopic apartments we lived in all over the D.C. area in those days, um, she had a, a, a walls of books, records, and art. The TV was only used to watch Walter Cronkite or whatever the news was or some public television thing. But mainly, it's about records and reading. And so that's that's the environment I was raised in. And this kind of looks like the house I have now, art, books, records, and I have no TV. So I'm kind of a mama's boy in that respect. <laughs> and so listening, my mom would listen, would put on records. Sometimes if I wasn't at my dad's, the entire weekend would be one record after another. Or if it was a record she liked, she would play it like four times in a day, which is intense like, mom, do you have to listen to that again? Well, yeah. Well, it's her apartment, her rules. Yeah. But it was a really diversified playlist. And every, it was everything from Barbara Streisand to Bartok, Stravinsky, Beethoven, uh, Lead Belly, Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Glenn Campbell, uh, Dionne Warwick. Just like show tunes like Hello, Dolly, Porgy and Bess yeah. to classical and she would just, you know, hear something on the radio or see something on TV and, well, let, let's try that out. And she'd buy whatever it was. And so if I really liked a record, I said, can I borrow that it, to my general electric record player, the one that folds up into a little suitcase you can carry <laughs> that absolutely annihilates records because the stylus is brutal and you just rip your records apart with them. She goes, you know what? You can have it. Because I'm, if you play it once, it's never going to be playable on my much nicer system. <laughs> I would just, and because, you know, we go to the record store like one to two, three times a week. We used to live across the street from one. We'd walk. Oh, cool. And so my mom was always buying records. And so as a little kid, 
uh, I think the first record I bought was a cassette version of a Grand Funk Railroad live album with my paper route money. Not necessarily understanding what I was getting, but it looked cool. And when the woman pulled it out from the glass counter at People's Drugstore at Wisconsin and O Street in Georgetown, she goes, is this what you want? It was like $4.75 or something. And I was too afraid to go, no. I kind of went, yeah. (laughs) And I bought it. And I was playing it through my one speaker Norelco cassette deck kind of bewildered at this very adult fair that I had kind of blundered into. And to this day, a lot of that record is imprinted in my, my, the front of my brain pan. But records that made massive impact on me, living alone in my room, being a, a, a skittish, hyperactive kid who didn't get along well with other people my age, the Beatles mm. were impactful because I thought they were like Captain Kangaroo and those records for kids, okay. you've seen, you know, Timey Kangaroo, Downsport and whatever. I thought the Beatles, who look like kindly uncles, um, I thought they made records for kids, like a Yellow Submarine. That's a kid's song, I thought. So the Beatles became my alt dads because they weren't scary like my father. And they sang about fun things, I guess. And so I had those records, the Beatles, I listened okay. to. I would just, I had that setting on the record player that just plays the side over and over again. And I would just listen to one side of a record for like an hour, just because I didn't need to get up. I just liked the company. And then I I was given a Sony uh, clock radio so I could get up for school, had the alarm. And I'd listen to uh, WPGC, which was a FM classic rock station. It wasn't classic when I was young. It was just what was on. <laughs> so I started listening to like a, semi-eclectic FM top 40 fair. And that really hit me because in those days you could listen to Aerosmith, the shy lights, Chicago and Gladys Knight. And that would be one block where it was kind of an interesting salad of, you know, Steve Miller plus R and B plus Led Zeppelin who were still making records in those days and, and the Rolling Stones. And so you got a little bit of like Stevie Wonder and Cool in the Gang and Ted Nugent. It was all kind of in, in there. And that, it's not exactly eclectic, but it's not all classical. It's not sure, a jazz sure. station. And that really opened me up. And so music became the thing that didn't try and fight me in the schoolyard, mm-hmm. didn't chase me around. Didn't try and take my bike. Mm-hmm. And so music was the first thing that impacted me positively as a young person. And now as a guy who's creaking around at age 60, music is still my obsession. I live in a house full of music-related items, mm-hmm. multiple playback systems, like one or two in every room, just so that you there's no excuse not to have something playing back at you. Sure. And so um, the, the 1960s Washington, D.C., where music became the refuge, was racially hyper intense. I mean, you can read about it. You, you, can, you can open your window. I'm not trying to exaggerate. On some afternoons, you'd open your window and the smell of smoke and tear gas would come in because the damn city was on fire. Yeah. I lived within walking distance of Catherine Graham's house. Catherine Graham owned the Washington Post. When the riots hit D.C. 
It was Catherine Graham's house. So there's National Guard with sandbags, like a little circle of sandbags and some guy in a ill-fitting army outfit with like an M1. Yeah. You know, hello. And the guy was like, hello, little guy. <laughs> and so the early days for me living in Washington, D.C. were turbulent because yeah. of just American history. Totally. This is a really violent country you live yeah. in. Yeah. Like people go, we've never seen anything like this before. Well, you might not have. Yeah. But 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 history has. Totally. And so I was politicized at a very early age about racial relations. That was the a primary issue of my life then and now. Uh-huh. And I'm hypersensitive to anything racist because mm-hmm. I see how awful it is and how it destroys people more more than you might think. It destroys the psyches of people, destroys their expectations. And so all of that kind of put me on my way to where I am now. But that that was kind of the early days. It was music, fear, yeah, and trying to make friends, being a, an, a, a kid with social anxiety and hyperactive issues. So obviously we, you know, we can't talk about your experience of the, in the nineties with, uh, without at least touching on the eighties, you know, your, sure. you know, your energy and stage presence, everything was just, just incredibly electric. Uh, I mean, so what did you enjoy most about those years, you know, being in the, the LA Southern California area, you know, like that coming in the punk scene Washington, coming from DC, what was that like? Well, well, the 1980s in 19, 19- 81, I saw Black Flag, who I already liked because the one record I had of theirs. Mm-hmm. And I saw them play. I'll make this brief. And uh, they were became my favorite band immediately. And I saw them went, well, that's like the best thing ever. And I really want the singer's job. And I'm talking about the great Des Cadena. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with Des. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. Certainly better than me. But I, wa- I, I want to be in that band. And so around June of the same year, 1981, they came to the East Coast again. I had made friends with them, kind of. And uh, I went, drove up to New York to see them play at Irving Plaza because they weren't playing in D.C., got a day off work. And uh, they played a second show after their big show at a club down the street, you know, make some more money, meet girls. And I helped them load in. I followed them in my wounded VW fastback. <laughs> and um, John Joseph and the Cro- of the Chromags and I helped them load their gear into the venue. And we watched a guy get stabbed. But we oh, still had to load the gear in. And, oh, that was the East Village in those days. Like, that's a stabbing. <laughs> ah, not the last one I ever saw. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. So we helped them load in. And there's like the revelers from the Irving Plaza had figured out we can drink beer and see Black Flag again if we mosey five blocks down the street. And so the place is fairly full. I'm looking at my watch. I realize I have to drive like seven hours back to D.C., shower in the work sink at my place <laughs> of employ, Hagen does. <laughs> Steal a clean shirt from my boss, Steve, and do a full shift. But at 20, you have that kind of energy. Now, yeah, I I can't do that now. (laughs) I I can, but I'll pay for 14 more days afterwards. So um, I look at my watch and I I say to the band, I said, hey, I'm right. Like, There's no barricade. I'm standing right in front of them. I said, can you play a song called, you know, Clocked In, which is about going to work. I said, can you play Clocked In for me? Because I got to go to work. And Des says, hey, this is a... Clocked in, it's for Henry, because he's got to go to work. And then Des looks at me, and he kind of sticks the mic out. Like, 
You sing it. So oh. I went, well, I don't mind if I do. I'll mind you. <laughs> I hopped on stage and I saw the rest of the band go, oh, Henry's going to sing it. It's not so much of a gig. It's just kind of an after show party vibe. Yeah. Sure. The audience, they don't know me from Adam. And I had an idea of how one should sing a Black Flag song. Like lungs should come out of a mouth. Blood should fly out of the mouth. Eyeballs should be, you know, ejected from the eye sockets. And an audience should be properly terrified. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And so I knew the lyrics. And I, I'll never forget singing and seeing two reactions. The audience, East, East Village punk rockers kind of, shutting their mouth for, a, that's a first. And yeah. uh, instead of like throwing chairs and telling you where to go. And I, I looked on either side of me like a quarterback before the snap. Mm-hmm. Um, and my soon to be bandmates were looking at me like, whoa, <laughs> like we're awake now. So, I, you know, a minute and a half later, I gave the mic back to uh, Des. I went, well, see you. And I <laughs> limped back to my car and drove to D.C. thinking I was where I should be for 90 seconds and my life will never get better. But I'll always be able to say I was in Black Flag for a minute and a half. Yeah. And I, I, I wish I didn't do it because it was so good. My life is kind of, I've already summited and I'm like 20, <laughs> 20 and a half years old. Uh, two days later, a member of Black Flag calls the ice cream shop and said, hey, we're still in New York. Des wants to move to rhythm guitar. He never liked singing. He wants to be, he's a great singer, but you know, he's a guitar guy yeah, and a great guitar player. And he, he doesn't want to sing anymore. We're auditioning singers. You certainly uh, lodged in the memory. You want to come back up here and audition. And I looked at my ice cream scoop and my chocolate besmeared apron. And I thought of my future at three seventy five dollars an hour. And those are jobs you could get kind of anywhere if you're willing to work. Sure. So I took the train up there. I was found myself in a practice room holding a mic. I actually literally pinched myself, not believing Aww. that this was happening. And Greg Ginn looked at me and said, Oh, what song do you want to play? <laughs> and I remember asking a police story and trying not to pass out. And we played the set twice. Most of the songs had never been released. So I just kind of baby, 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 ooh, ooh, yeah. faked it through 90 minutes. And they said, you're in. Wow. I, I said, what do I do? Like, what? Like, I mean, I mean, what? You're in Black Flag doing what? You're the singer. Who? You. I, like, I was like this. This can't be my life. Like is three days ago, I was in this city. What? I mean, I thought I was asleep, dreaming. And so one of the band members handed me this massive folder of lyrics, said, you learn these, you go back to DC, you kiss your little mommy goodbye, you give away all your stuff, you quit your job. Here's the tour itinerary. You meet us as soon as you can. Jeez. Wow. And I still have the bus ticket. Um, I, from DC to Detroit and I called, I got back to DC and there's no internet, no cell phones. And Ian, my best friend from Fugazi and minor threat, he, he said, where have you been? I said, okay, here's, here's what happened. I didn't have time to tell anybody. I'm kind of leaving soon to be the singer in black flag. And they're all like, you know, question marks at the end. And then I said, so what do you reckon? And it's the only person I've ever really asked for advice. And he said, are you kidding? This is going to be great. And he took me to the bus station. Awesome. And uh, I get to Detroit. I can't sleep. You know, I get there the next morning. And I 
I have a duffel bag and like 120 bucks and I taxi to the venue. I think it's clutch cargo. And I go in there. I've beaten the band there. They're driving from, you know, who knows where. And there's a, a, a wonderful Midwestern woman behind the bar. She said, uh, may I help you? I said, uh, yes, ma'am. I'm the singer in Black Flag. And it's the first time I had said it as a declarative statement to wow. anyone, <laughs> expecting her to go, yeah, right. <laughs> and she said, would you like something to drink? And I said, uh, can I have a Coke, please? And she gave me that Coke with no bubbles. It's all syrup and one yeah. ice cube. And I went, free drinks? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, so that's kind of a long story to answer the question. But I arrived in, in Los Angeles as the singer in Black Flag in yeah. July of 1981. By August 21st, after many weeks of like six to eight hours a day of band practice, and I realized... I'm going to have to run like hell to keep up with these maniacs I'm in a band with who are the hardest working people I had ever met. And I thought I was ready after like two days of practice. They went, uh, you'll know ready when we tell you. <laughs> and after six weeks of doing the songs, like, you know, 10 times each a day, you learn what ready means. Mm -hmm. You learn what discipline and focus and really hard work is. And I came here and, and we were broke, of course, but I came here under the guise of notoriety. And it was a thing where people start recognizing you in the yeah. microscopic punk rock world. Girls want to talk to you, which was yeah. new to me. Um, guys <laughs> want to give you drugs, which was not my thing. Mm -hmm. And guys would say, you want some more speed? I'm like, oh, I'm not on it now. I'll go, come on, man. <laughs> and it was like that sulfate. You you sniff off someone's hand yeah. uh, in a men's room. Um, yeah. And I met people around me who would be dead within the next few years, yeah. uh, meth, heroin, suicide, bad luck. And so my early days in Los Angeles was watching this very feral, hardcore music scene with young people my age or younger who were burning the candle. They're just, they're incinerating the candle. Like they weren't even thinking about next year being mm -hmm. alive. They're thinking about tomorrow or tonight. Yeah. And um, a lot of them paid the price for that. Like a lot of them are gone because yeah. I, you know, I come from the middle class, blinding white Sears and Roebuck underwear, yeah. Kansas SpaghettiOs, Wheaties, yeah. minimum wage work. And I came out here and met people who were you know eating dog food. Cause it's yeah. cheap. Yeah. And like I go, how do you do that? You ball it up in a, in a piece of white bread. Like it's a ball and you just eat the thing really fast and pretend you don't, you, and just wash it down with a lot of water. So you don't even think of what you're eating. Oh. Want one? <laughs> well, no. My life went from, you know, the lyric of a Bruce Springsteen song. Like, I'll be working at this job for the rest of my life too. Mm -hmm. There's no money. Everyone around me is a maniac. Mm -hmm. The streets are dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'm watching Guys my own age in hot pants on Santa Monica and La Cienega yeah. turn tricks or get abused by cars driving by them yeah. where everything was a walk on the wild side. Exactly. I was just going to say it was that living life on the fast lane, hair metal, West Hollywood days, huh? Yeah, but the, the I was in the punk rock version of that. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I watched, you know, I... I won't say his name because he's not here to defend himself, but a, a band that has sold in excess of 50 million records. I remember watching the bass player and you, I, you know who this person is, but you know, it's not fair to uh, read his book. Um, <laughs> I used to watch him deal Coke yeah. in front of tower records. 
yeah. in his full rock regalia mm-hmm. with a very scary hollow-eyed person whose name I'm not going to mention because if he hears this, I'm afraid of what he'd do to me <laughs> if he's still alive, who is his bodyguard. Yeah. And I knew him because he was kind of the scary guy who would always be hanging out with Black Flag. but And he was like one of those dirty deeds, you know, done dirt cheap types. Yeah. He would bodyguard this future mega platinum rock star because um, the guy's got money and a, a, a pocket full of cocaine. Yeah. So I knew of some of the bands that are really big now or, you know, have broken up. I remember when that hair metal scene was at the club level. Yeah. When uh, Motley Crue would play the Troubadour yeah. or the Rainbow, when uh-huh. they were club bands. I remember when the first Motley Crue, the, the Too Fast for Love album came out on an independent label. Mm-hmm. And we were sent like five copies because we had SST records. So everyone promoted each other. Okay. And we just looked at them and didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, I think they, they got used to eventually shake, shake the seeds out of a, a stash of weed or something. But um, I was there for the early days of, yeah. of the hair metal, which became quite a thing. Yeah. And there was winners and losers and a lot of death in that genre too. Oh, totally. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, LA was hectic, but it was wide open. Yeah. Where you could, there's a lot of venues and you could, there's no barricades. You could walk right up to the front, you know, and pound your fist on the singer's foot. And yeah. um, a lot of opportunity for ruin or advancement. I mean, yeah. all the drugs were around. There was people to play with on all kinds of levels. And um, no one was really minding the store as far as any disease that could be transmitted. So you really had to be careful out there in this kind of youth wonderland. And, you know, you become very old very quickly. I mean, you you two aren't old and I'm not old like 80, but I'm not young like 20. Mm -hmm. And there's a time in your life where everyone around you is young and good looking, including you. Mm -hmm. And everyone's kind of sizing each other up like... You should we? Yeah, why not? I got an hour, and like every, all kinds of things are possible. Uh, it's like living in a fantasy, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. that would be some elderly person's fantasy of back in the day. But there's a time in your life when you you are the song. Yeah, and I remember all of that vividly because I was a, I was someone in a well known band, mm-hmm. so everything came over to our place. Yeah. You didn't have to meet people. They came up to meet you. Yeah. And um, so you had culture not only delivered to you, it was kind of by the truckload dumped on you because you're, you're, you're in black flag. Yeah. And that was my youth of having cameras in my face, all manner of propositions. And um, a super low budget rock star, if you will, like, you know, broke ass, but, and, you know, lots of people know who you are, including the LAPD. Yeah. And, and that was really scary because, you know, they recognized me more than the other band members because I had my face out there more, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I had some interesting conversations with law enforcement and I'm not the kind of guy who breaks laws. So that was kind of terrifying, actually. That's really interesting that you mentioned that because, um, you know, I think... LA, the LAPD's, you know, kind of war on citizens in the 
late 80s and 90s and just how it um, manifested in so many different genres of music. And even, you know, I know even even like in some of your music, you touched on it, too. Um, yeah, so it was, it was so it was so prevalent yeah. and, and no musician type on the club level escaped it because they hate, yeah. they hated the metal people because, you know, people are smoking weed outside. Mm-hmm. They're grouping up in groups in the Daryl Gates LAPD. You can look him up. He was a yeah. real piece of work. Yeah. Um, they didn't want any groups of young people getting together, be they short haired, long haired, mm-hmm. white, black, gay, straight. Mm-hmm. They didn't want the people doing the first amendment, you know, like getting together yeah. because that means consensus. And that means you're going to start a war with the LAPD. So they want everyone on their own, isolated and easy to break down. Mm-hmm. And so you versus the cops, it turned into this thing. where, like, well, I'm not at war with you. I don't break into houses. Mm-hmm. I don't deal drugs. Mm-hmm. I'm a very hardworking person trying to make it in a band. Mm-hmm. Why are you messing with me? Like, literally, I am not a criminal. Yeah. But you're making me feel like one. Yeah. And you're definitely making me hate anything in a uniform. Yeah. And that took a lot of adulthood and logicking to work myself out of that because I had so many bad examples. You toss out the law enforcement baby with its bathwaters is screw them all. Mm -hmm. Like just because, you know, look what they do to me. I didn't do anything to them. They're the cops. What can I do to them? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. They have that as, as Greg Ginn said in the song, police story, they hate us. We hate them. We can't win. No way. And that's the perfect, that's the best anti-police song I've ever heard. Oh, absolutely. Because it really, that, that, that line really, that was the dilemma. We can't win. They have guns. They can arrest you for nothing. And who's going to, who's the judge going to believe you with all the tattoos Uh or a guy in a uniform? Come on. You're going to jail. Like it's really terrifying. And it's still prevalent today too. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think about, you know, last last year and the, you know, the George Floyd uh, marches, Black Lives Matter marches and just how we live on, you know, Fountain Avenue and just seeing like what was like 30 something cop cars. Oh, yeah. The National Guard. I mean, there was one day last year where I mean, it was at least a half hour straight of just. You know, uh, Humvees driving by, police cars driving by, SWAT driving by. It's just to send a message. Yeah, it's a it's a paramilitarily trained law enforcement. After the Watts riots, they went never again. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. uh, Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'll, so so that was the eighties, um, and let's talk about the late eighties and into the nineties because um, you had such a prolific nineties, especially you know the late eighties when you started with the Rollins Band. Can you walk us through kind of like the music industry, your career, how your art shifted sure. as you moved into the nineties? Um, yeah, yeah. The, the the way I can speak about the nineties is is the path that was set up for me in the eighties. So what I did in the eighties kind of dictated my nineties. Okay. And so in the late 1980s, I had black flag had broken up in 1986. Within a few months, I'd made my first solo record. I I hit the ground running. And so, uh, black flag, uh, June, July 86, the band breaks up April 87. I have a, a full lineup Rollins band. We are on, on tour in the garage, working on music by April on tour by May. 
Wow. So like 10 months wow. later, I am on tour with a record in the stores with a new band, with original material that would end up being the Lifetime album recorded in October of 1987 in Leeds, England. And so MTV knew of me because of Black Flag made videos. Mm -hmm. And so that door was opening ever slightly wider because they needed a thing called content. Yep. And if you could find a way to make a video, they might play it because they only had like Judas Priest, David Bowie, Devo, and a few others. They needed content. So you could be small of fame and still get in there. So um, some buddy of mine named Michael Stipe, he directed a video for us because, you know, he's cool and we were broke. And so he took mercy upon us and he directed a a, a very arty video, not much like us, but very Michael and and super cool. So that hit MTV. Uh And so by 89, the Rollins band was very well established because of like insanely intense work ethic, mm-hmm. right record tour, right record tour, just like I learned in Black Flag. I was riffing off what Ginn and Dukowski taught me, like you work, you pass out, you get up, you work until you pass out <laughs> and it's relentless, unpleasant, and you never quit. Yeah. And my bandmates, you know, I, I told them, I said, you know, bring your running shoes because and get international driver's licenses and renew your passport because we are going worldwide. And they're like, okay. And Within several months of the Rollins band, boom, we're in Denmark, Holland, England, uh, Hungary, uh, a few years after that, Russia, all these, you know, all over. Because I said, hey, I told you, man, we're going to go, you know, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. And we worked really hard. And so 1989, we slingshot into 1990. And some band called Jane's Addiction, or you know, they're, they're you know, they, they may have written a, a pretty good song or two. Uh, <laughs> a, fairly, a, a fairly good live band. Yeah, I, I give them a, I give them a seven. Uh, but <laughs> they were, you know, kind of starting to to be made it known that they're one of the most crushing live bands I've ever seen. Like only a fool would go on after that. I mean, yeah. maybe Led Zeppelin, but anyone else, I, I wouldn't do it. And so their manager and my manager were friends. They liked our band. We liked them. And so they said, hey, uh, why don't you open a few shows for us? And their audience really dug us. And we were used to opening for bands now and then, like us opening for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. That's not a match. And like, we, we were fans and friends of that band, but their audience are like, so not like the, the finger, like we're in England, two fingers all night for all 35 minutes. But the Jane's audience was like, okay, we're not we throwing ashtrays at these yeah, guys. We can dig it. Yeah. And it was a good double bill, like two bands that can yeah. really, really lay it down. And so one night I'm, uh, the the my road manager and we're in our van following their bus. Um, my road manager says Perry wants to talk to you in his bus. Okay, so the Lord has called me to the manor. <laughs> so I've never been in a tour bus before, and I'm sitting like I'm a small guy in a big thing, like you know, first day in the city. And I'm looking around, and one of them said to me. Uh, have you never been in a tour bus before? Like, does it show? Is, it, is that a, a bathroom? Is that, that's a coffee machine. And like one of them said, you, you, you know, you're a hero to me 
and I'm in a tour bus and you're in a van. I go, hey, don't worry about it, man. Like, who cares? You know, yeah. you're, you're younger and, you know, it's a different thing. And um, I go back to the back of the bus and talk to Perry, who's editing the gift at that time. He has a full editing bay in the back of the bus. Wow. So he would be looking at some edit and he'd look over at me every once in a while. Hey, man. I got this idea, like, what would you think of a festival with a bunch of different bands with like pro-gun and anti-gun booths? You can get in on an argument. Like, what would you think of a festival like that? And I go, I don't know. It sounds pretty good to me, mister. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, And so he goes, okay, man. And so like a show later, we're kind of following them through the Midwest. Yeah. Um, I'm called into this room in some uh, gymnasium or such, you know, 2,500 seater were playing before they exploded. Um, and it's Perry and his manager. Like, we want to formally offer you the first half of a thing called Lollapalooza. Oh, my God. And um, to, I had a lot of gumption. I said, yeah. so the first half? <laughs> well, we want to give another lucky band a, a chance to be the opening band for the second half. Uh-huh. I said, well, you know, actually, you've seen us play and you you know who we are. Yeah. My counter offer is I'll take the entire tour mm-hmm. or nothing because I I think wow. that's fair. That is gumption. Yeah. And yeah. they said uh, and I was like, whoa, Henry, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I I kind of figured they would not go. Well, then leave the room. I, I, you know, I figured it wouldn't be a steep drop off a cliff. And they said, you know what? that's, you know what, that's a valid point. Let us kick that around. You go do sound check and we'll, we'll get back at you later. Okay. And I still have the day sheet, which is a sheet that, you know, here's what we're doing. Here's when you're going on. I still have the day sheet. Um, congratulations. The Rollins band will be on the first ever Lollapalooza. And so we were the first note struck at oh. Lollapalooza because we're the first band. Incredible. Yeah. In Arizona. The song was Low Self-Opinion, the first song ever heard at Lollapalooza, Inc. (laughs) And that was summer 91. Uh But that was, you know, and that's not exactly 1990, but it was 1990 that got me to 91, Lollapalooza, which was probably the game change event for my band and and my bandmates. Because instead of 800 people hearing us tonight, like like 12,000 or more, because we're the opening band, people are still asleep while we're on, but enough people saw us and we were a good band. I mean, we could lay it down. And so within a week of everyone getting to know each other, the butthole surfers yeah. are jumping in on our set and we're playing all together at once. Because oh, wow. and then we pull our equipment off and they'd go on. I'm singing one to three songs a day with Ice T with body count. Um, <laughs> our drummer is on stage with Susie and the Banshees. Oh. Vernon Reed is jamming with us. Oh. I mean, everyone started like mixing it up. How Perry fun. and Ice T were were doing songs together during the the uh, Jane's session, the uh, Jane's set. I mean, it. everything got, you know, everyone's jamming and um, lots of other things like a lot of, a lot of running around on that tour. A lot That's of, uh, a lot of people who, uh, you know, what leaves Vegas, what stay, what is done in Vegas stays in <laughs> Vegas. There was a whole lot of that on that tour. I can't yeah, go into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> well, we're, we're all young. And so a lot of people saw the band by October of 91, my bandmates and I are in the recording studio recording what would be called the, an album called The End of Silence. 
which was the big change for us. Major label, we're on a major label. So we have the big distribution, the big press arm Mm -hmm. with a band who's ready to work like crazy people, like a major label wants you to work. Every radio interview, shake every hand, meet Mm -hmm. every person from Walmart who's going to be selling your record. Mm-hmm. I'm that guy. I met them all. I did every 6 a.m. Wow. Morning Madhouse. We have Henry Rollins on the show. Hey, big guy. And I, I, you know, I'm up at, you know, at a payphone at some truck stop. I good morning. Cause I, I'm trying to get us out there. Like MTV yeah. wants you to run a hundred miles to say hello for 0.7 seconds on MTV yeah. and then run back to the sound check. I'll do it. I'm yeah. just trying to get us on the you know, the flag planted on the top of the mountain. Yeah. And so um, we, the album comes out in 1992, like February. And we played like 180 shows wow. uh, open for the Beastie Boys, open for this, you know, played every festival we could. So by the time we get to like Thanksgiving uh, of n- to 1992, I, I did like 20 some of my own shows. I did damn near like, near 200 shows that year because on a night off don't take a night off to go do one of your own shows like me on stage alone and so I realized this was you know I did the right thing you do everything you can once you get a foot in the door Mm -hmm. of an industry that picks and chooses winners and losers and so the 90s for me was major labels Uh from the van into a tour bus Mm -hmm. money beyond paying rent. Like I got a publishing advance oh, and my, wow. my, my lawyer, she said, hon, I'm going to, let me, let me just take this check and, and just put it in your bank. But there's a few things I want to do with the money. I'm like, okay. She goes, I'm going to pay a year of your rent. So you're not going to think about rent for a whole year. Wow. And that was genius. Yeah. Cause yeah. ask any independent band, like, Towards the end of the month, the whole tour is in jeopardy because no one can pay the rent. So you're calling moms, girlfriends, dead yeah. people, <laughs> trying to get your like four hundred dollars. Yeah, and that was that. You know the 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 thing that hung over us like a the, the sword of Damocles. And I went, yeah, Gail, damn, do that because <laughs> I can just it. I can work now yeah. without the something breathing on my neck. I don't want to take it easy. I want to work harder without looking to the side. Like, can I pay for the room I'm never in? Yeah. Cause I'm on tour. What a brilliant thing. It's totally brilliant. And you know, I remember the day I bought a a watch that wouldn't break in like two weeks. I'm like, Whoa, it's like $65. I got money. I I bought a, finally a good pair of speakers. And so the nineties and there were some, you know, some, some bad times, mm-hmm. um, some r- really tough downsides, which are just really too awful to ruin the, the good vibe of this podcast. So I, I won't, there, it's widely known. You can read about what yeah. happened to me yeah. on, uh, and not just to me, but just one other person, yeah. uh, on the internets. But, um, the nineties suddenly had a bank account. The band is playing Japan, Brazil. I mean, we, we are, Russia, Poland, like we're playing the Reading Festival, where we've arrived. And so musically, we were very successful, record sales, successful, getting royalty checks. I was writing books. I had a book company. I had an office and a staff because we were selling enough things to 
have a staff and I could pay them in full. So I'm selling a lot of books. I'm selling a lot of records. I'm writing a ton. I'm writing for magazines. I'm writing for newspapers. I'm on TV. I'm doing voiceover work. Like, hey, we're the gap. You want to say the words to a commercial? I'll try that. You get paid? You, huh? And residuals? Hate mail? And, and so <laughs> all, all things come with stuff like that. In the 90s, uh, uh, in the late 80s, Crispin Glover, the actor, said, Henry, Henry, you should try acting sometime. And um, suddenly it's the 1990s and I'm on the streets of uh, the roads of, of Texas chasing Charlie Sheen or his stunt driver in a movie called The Chase. Yeah. Uh, a year later, I'm in a fight scene with Al Pacino in the movie Heat. Yep. Oh, I'm yep. hanging out with Al. Call me Al. Call me Al, yep. Henry. Yep. Call me yep. Al. That's my mom's favorite movie, so she'll love to hear this. <laughs> Just a reminder of how bad my hair looked in that film. <laughs> <laughs> and so suddenly I'm – it, my world is really different. I, I, I had the money. I bought a house. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had a – that kind of – I had a car. Yeah. So the 90s were this far. And I'm not saying money's great or you 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 do all this work. So you have money. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying my my world went from can't pay the rent, Mm -hmm. eating one and a half meals today to a very different world. And then you could focus on your art. That that was the beautiful thing. Money. You know, it's not like I'm buying Ferraris and and totally. bags of cocaine. Totally. I drive a Mazda six. <laughs> um, it allows me to come up with bigger ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, um, now I want to do a photo book. So, mm-hmm. building a photo book is going to take a lot of time and a lot of money, and I need to go to these destinations to get photos I need. And so, the ideas can become bigger and more. Uh, wider ranging. The 1990s is when I started traveling without a show waiting for me. Yeah. Because, you know, people say you're very well traveled. I'm like, well, I'm pretty well traveled for rock and roll. You know, I can get to Russia because the guitar player has a guitar. We're a band, but I've never been to the African continent, have never been to Southeast Asia. And so besides Thailand. And so I want to go to Vietnam. I want to go to Kenya. I want to go to Egypt. You know, I want to I want to go to all these places. And at this point, I've been to about 90 some countries. Wow. And um yeah, and all in all seven continents. You know, wow. that's you know, Antarctica is the one that, that that's the hardest one to get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was the '90s where I decided I'm going to go to the African continent uh-huh. every year. Africa is a continent; it's not a country. Obviously, you know, we had to teach that to Sarah Palin. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, when I when I was in Kenya, that was the first time I was there. I was like, okay. I'm going to make a habit of this. Like there's so much to learn. Life is so much bigger than I understand. And I learned that here. So I better start going to Africa a lot. And that led to so many trips to Africa, you know, trips up and down rivers like the Nile and and, um, uh, going to into Timbuktu, into the Saharan desert for music festivals. Um, You know, Uganda, South Sudan, all all over Djibouti, which is really intense. Um, So the 90s 
was hyper transformational for me because it allowed me to act upon my dreams and every and you can, your dreams can be of any size to wrench them out of your mind into the physical into the re, physical reality is quite an endeavor quite often because dreams are easy you just come up with stuff yeah sure um to make it happen that's you know gravity and friction and reality that's you know, that's something. Yeah. And so that was the nineties for me. Um, I became a middle-aged man. You know, <laughs> I, I became 30, you know, 39 years of age in, uh, in, uh, 1999, I guess I was, uh, 38. Okay. And so, you know, yeah. I'm not young anymore. We're just experiencing life. Yeah. yeah. And, um, as, but as far as like vivid, Here's the world at your door. Yeah. Instead of just here's LA at your door. Yeah. Or a club in Wisconsin's parking lot at your door. Yeah. I got to kind of go anywhere in the world I wanted to go. And that was the 90s where the my world became very much um customized to how I saw to yeah. live it. Where That's I'm hard. calling the shots. For me, and thankfully the shots weren't, well, I'm going to, you know, buy gunny sacks of heroin and light things on fire. Mm-hmm. It was, I'm going to work like an extraordinarily crazy person and see the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what the 90s allowed me to do. And that's how I'm living now. All right, 90s kids, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you tune in on Thursday for side B of our conversation with Henry. We cannot wait for you to hear it. It's truly such a fun conversation. And um, until then, thank you so much. Please make sure you are following us on social media, TTTHPod on Twitter, Talk to the Hand Pod on Instagram. You can email us at talktothehandpod at gmail.com or you can go to our website, talktothehandpod.com. Um, Also, please leave a five-star review and include your name. You'll be entered into um, our giveaway for the month of April. And yeah, I think that's it. Until Thursday, mask up, socially distance, be a good human, and be excellent to each other. Thanks, everyone. See you Thursday.